Um, well, it's not Easter yet. We've got a few more weeks to go. So today we're going to be in Mark chapter 13, which means we're in the 13th week of our series on the gospel of Mark. Only three weeks left after this. Spoiler alert, Easter is Mark chapter 16, which is about the resurrection. Sorry if none of you knew it ended that way, but it does. Uh, but we're in Mark chapter 13, and this chapter can be really confusing. If you have your uh, Gospel of Mark reading guide and you've been following along with that, Mark chapter 13 gets a little bit weird because Jesus starts talking about some things that are going to happen in the future, okay? And Jesus gives us a call in Mark chapter 13 to be steadfast, Steadfast is one of my favorite words in the Bible. We see this over and over again throughout scripture. Some of the Psalms say, my heart is steadfast before you. I love the concept of steadfastness. And steadfastness just means that you stay on track, you stay on mission, no matter what's going on around you. I've learned a lot about being steadfast because uh, for the last like six or seven weeks, I've gotten really good about going to the gym. It was my New Year's resolution. It took me to the end of February. I don't want to talk about it. Um, the Lord knows my heart. But, uh, but I've been going to the gym, and it's very distracting in the gym. Okay? It's distracting for two reasons. The first reason is that the first day you walk into the gym, everybody, the first time they go to the gym, they really feel the extra padding. You know, you just walk in there, you're feeling like you have a snowsuit on. <laughs> And you walk in, and here's these people running on the treadmill really fast, and these ripped guys that are lifting weights, and they're flexing in the mirror, and you're like, I do not belong here. This is horrible. And you start to get distracted by people who are further along than you are. But you're already in the door, and it would be too embarrassing to turn around and leave, so you have to do what you're there to do. But being steadfast means you stay on mission, you stay on track, even though it might be discouraging to see the people around you. And the other thing that can throw me off track at the gym is, uh, you know, I, I loved going to the gym in America. A lot of people in the U.S., they go to the gym, they know what they're doing. French people don't know how to gym. They don't know what they're doing at the gym. Um, so it's very distracting because people do really weird stuff, um, and they do stuff wrong. You know, I've established I'm a rule follower, so I've made up nicknames for some of these people. Um, there's half rep guy. I call him half rep guy because he does, he gets all set up at the bench press and then he goes <laughs> like this and then he does push-ups and he goes down about an inch and then he does about 900 teeny tiny crunches. Like he just lays there for an hour like barely moving his abs. So that's half rep guy. Uh, there's another guy who comes in and he puts one of those electric ab shocker things on his belly. And I look at him and I think, you should do that in the locker room because that's embarrassing. You know, you're in the gym and you're putting like some electric shock thing to give you abs. Like this is weird and sad. And people are dropping things everywhere and running into each other with the weights. And it's distracting because sometimes I can get really focused on what they're all doing wrong instead of what I'm there to do. This is what it means to be steadfast. It means you focus on your mission. You focus on your goals, on your business, what you're there to do, and you don't worry about what's going on around you. You stay consistent. You stay on mission. That's being steadfast. And that's what Jesus tells us about in Mark chapter 13. Today we're going to be talking about the end times. Ah. <sighs> 
The time has come for us to talk about the end times. And what I mean by the end times is that in the Bible, God gives us a picture of how this is all going to end. God is writing a story. He's been writing a story from the time of creation. And at some point, like any story, there's going to be an end to the story. And there are places in the Bible where God points toward the future and gives us clues about what we can expect, uh, how we can expect the story to end. So in this passage, uh, Jesus reminds us that it's easy for us to get distracted. It's easy for us to forget what we're doing here. It's easy for us to forget our mission, but we're called to be steadfast. So in Mark chapter 13, I did so much research for this sermon, and I found a lot of conflicting viewpoints. So when you study the end times, if you read a book about the end times, you're going to read a lot of conflicting viewpoints. Um, But we need to remember what I almost said my friend N.T. Wright. He's one of my favorite theologians, so I'll call him my friend, but I don't know him. But N.T. Wright says this about the end times. He says, we must remind ourselves that all Christian language about the future is a set of signposts pointing into a mist. Signposts don't normally provide you with advanced photographs of what you'll find at the end of the road, but that doesn't mean they aren't pointing in the right direction. They're telling you the truth, the particular sort of truth that can be told about the future, okay? So when we talk about the end times, we don't want to get bogged down in details about when or how or specifics because the Bible doesn't give us photographs. It gives us signposts, okay? So there's a lot that we don't know about the end times. But here's what we know for sure. We know that Jesus is coming again. Just as Jesus came the first time, Jesus is coming again. He will return in power and authority, and he will set right everything that is broken in our world. Systems of oppression and power will fall, and true justice will be exacted. The poor and powerless will be set free and given reign. The marginalized will be honored, and everything broken by sin will be set right when Jesus comes again. There's a lot that we don't know, but what we do know for sure is that God ultimately will be victorious. God will be victorious. So what Jesus is telling us in Mark chapter 13 is that because we know how the story ends, because we know that God will be victorious, we have to remain steadfast. We have to be steadfast because we do not know what tomorrow might hold. We do not know what tomorrow might hold. Jesus starts off in Mark chapter 13. And uh, Mark says, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. They're looking at the temple. Do you see all of these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. So imagine you're here in Paris, and, and one of your friends comes to visit you. And you're walking around Paris, and they say, wow, look at these amazing buildings. And you say, someday all of this will be destroyed, and it will be rubble. And your friend goes, cool, that's, that's kind of a downer, but that's kind of what Jesus does. They walk by the temple, and they're like, wow, Jesus, look how beautiful the temple is. And Jesus says, everything you see here, not one stone will be left on another. So as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled? So Jesus starts off with a shocking prophecy. 
This is the temple. This is the dwelling place of the presence of God. This is supposed to have been established, and Jesus says this temple is going to be destroyed. Now, what we know about history is that 40 years after this conversation, there was the Roman conquest of Jerusalem. And Titus, who was the son of the emperor, came into Jerusalem and completely destroyed the city. It was a horrible, horrible, destructive thing. He destroyed the temple. The temple was torn down. And he did this at a time when a lot of Jews had filled the city on a pilgrimage. They, they killed a lot of people. They killed a lot of Jews. They starved them. It was a really, really dark time. And Jesus, uh, Jesus prophesied that this was going to happen. And some of the things he says in Mark chapter 13 are specific about that Roman conquest of Jerusalem. But what Jesus did here was he spoke about something that was going to happen after he was already gone. So Jesus knew that he would ascend to heaven and then all of these things would happen. What Jesus is doing here is he is proving to us that we can believe what he says about things that have not happened yet. So about a week after Jesus said this, his prophecies that he was going to die and be raised back to life came true. They really happened. And what Jesus prophesied about the destruction of the temple, it happened just like he said it would. So we can trust from this that the prophecies that Jesus made, the things that Jesus said about the end times are going to happen just like he said that they would. The temple represented stability. The temple was the center of social and religious life for the Jews. It represented stability. And what Jesus was saying to them was, this center, this building, this stability that you know, it's not going to be here forever. It's going to be torn down. Everything you know might fall away. So you have to be steadfast. Jesus lets the disciples know that things are going to get really difficult for them. But Jesus says to them, when you suffer... It brings you deeper into partnership with me. Jesus tells his disciples, people are going to turn away from you. Your family is going to reject you. You're going to be put on trial for preaching the gospel. And Jesus says, it's not you, it's me. It's not you thereafter, it's me. It's the message of the gospel. Because the gospel is subversive. When you stand up to systems of power and oppression in the world, and you start to teach that the humble will be exalted, and the poor and powerless are the ones who are favored, people don't like that. People don't like that gospel. And Jesus is telling his disciples, people are going to come against you, but when they do that, they're really coming against me. We can be steadfast because we know that no matter what life throws at us, ultimately Christ is the victor and he will overcome all death and all disease and all pain and all oppression. See, Mark's readers were Christians in the Roman Empire and they were undergoing terrible persecution. Sometimes we think that we're having persecution because someone doesn't like that we're a Christian or they say mean things about us. But these Christians were like being torn apart by lions and bears. Like there was literal persecution of their bodies. And in this passage, Mark reminds them that their suffering is part of a greater plan. Their persecution is part of a greater purpose that God has in writing the story that he's writing. So the disciples, of course, they want to know specifics. They say, when is this going to happen? How, how can we know this is coming? And Jesus goes on in verse 5 and says to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many people will come in my name claiming I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. 
Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. What Jesus is saying here is Jesus is saying no matter what happens, if there's wars, if there's earthquakes, all of this stuff, you stay steadfast and you stay focused on the goal in front of you. You stay focused on your mission. You don't know what tomorrow will bring, but no matter what tomorrow brings, we're called to be steadfast. We're not to be distracted in looking for signs. There are some Christians that are weird. And every time something happens, they're like, this means Jesus is coming back. It's probably going to happen tomorrow. And they, they make these weird predictions and these weird, uh, they have these weird moments where they think that they can line up the calendar and line up the prophecies and figure out the date that Jesus is going to come back. But Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't get distracted by the specifics. You stay on task. And Jesus says, when everything feels like it's falling apart around you, this is just the beginning of birth pains. This is the beginning of birth pains. Now, I've never had a baby, but my first year as the pastor here at the bridge, I think there were like seven or eight babies born. So I heard a lot from all of my friends about pregnancy, which was mostly a lot of like, I am so ready for this baby to come. I am so tired of being pregnant. This is not comfortable, right? But uh, unfortunately, when things get uncomfortable, that doesn't mean that the baby is coming immediately. That means you're like a third of the way there. Or maybe you just barely started, right? Things get uncomfortable. And what Jesus is saying is this is just the beginning, and things are going to get a lot more uncomfortable before they get better. So when you're like seven months pregnant and you're really ready to have that baby, it's going to get a lot worse over the next couple months before it gets better right? That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying it's going to be painful. There's going to be a lot of uncomfortable stuff that happens, but on the other side of it, we're promised new life. We're promised hope. It's the expectation of everything we've been waiting for. And when you're waiting for a baby, when you're pregnant, especially if you've been trying to get pregnant for a long time, you're waiting for that baby and you're just so excited. And you know that between here and there, there's going to be a lot of pain and a lot of maybe scary stuff that's going to happen, but you endure it because on the other side of it, there's a new life that you've been expecting and hoping for. That's the resurrection. We're on this side of it right now, and we know that between here and there, things are going to get really messy, but on the other side of it, we're promised new life, and we're promised that the things will be fulfilled and revealed that God has promised to us. When you're enduring pain and trial And rejection, when you're enduring the unexpected, you can stay steadfast because you know on the other side of that is new life and victory. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies. Paul is saying we should look forward to the second coming of Jesus because that's when the new life begins. That's when all the promises God has made to us will be fulfilled. We wait in hope. The second reason we have to be steadfast is because the world is looking for answers. Jesus goes on in verse 21. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, Do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. 
So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. Jesus says people are going to come along. They're going to lie to you. They're going to make it sound really good. And they're going to deceive a lot of people. But I can tell you that the world around us, when these things happen, the world will be looking for answers. Things will happen that will make non-religious people look for answers and meaning and purpose. And we already see this happening in our world. Um, I was a senior in high school when the 9-11 attacks happened in the U.S. And for my generation, it was the first thing that had ever happened. Um, I mean, what privilege to grow up 18 years of my life and never worry about the safety of my country, never worry about war. Um, But that day, everything became very unstable. It was terrifying. I grew up in Indiana, and we canceled all the high school football games. It's like, what terrorist even knows, you know, to bomb a football game in Indiana? It was so stupid. Um, but we were, we, were really, we were really terrified. And I remember the Sunday after the attacks, the church was packed to the walls. Everybody came to church the Sunday after that happened. They thought the world was ending, you know? But what happened was when that happened, everybody became so fearful and unstable that they turned to the church. Everybody started going to church, okay? People that had never gone to church before, people that went to church when they were little kids, the place that they turned to was the church. And there were some churches that were steadfast churches. They were ready for this. And many churches opened their doors the weekend of the attacks for prayer services. They opened their doors for pastoral counseling to help people make sense of what had happened. And they they operated with love and compassion. They were available to people to point them toward the message of the gospel. Those churches were steadfast. They were consistent. They weren't distracted by the things going on around them because they had their eyes on mission. But there were other churches that weren't ready for this. And they started preaching hate against certain people groups. They started preaching, promoting war and violence. They started promoting nationalism in a way that I don't believe pleased the heart of God. And many people turned away from the gospel because of the things that those churches said. When we're steadfast, when we're ready, when we're built on a firm foundation, we're ready. When the world comes looking for answers, we can share the message of the gospel with them. You never know when we're going to have the opportunity to do this kind of thing. We don't know when that door is going to be open, so we have to be ready. We have to be steadfast because the world is looking for answers. I want to challenge you today that it says, and it says other places in Scripture too, that in the end times, many people will be deceived. Many people will be led astray. Even Christians will be led astray, led to believe lies. And uh, when I was growing up and I heard this message, I was always like, well, what if someone deceives me? I'm a Christian. How do I know that I won't be one of the ones who's deceived? So I want to help you today to prepare yourself so that no one can deceive you and no one can lead you astray. And the first thing you need to do to keep from being deceived is you have to know the word of God. You have to know the word of God for yourself. One of our core values here at the bridge is biblical authority. What that means is that we believe the Bible has the authority and the power to instruct us on how to live our lives. And it also means that if we believe that, we have to help you understand the Bible. That's why we put out our Gospel of Mark reading guide. Hebrews chapter 4 says, For the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. 
When you know the word of God, it begins to anchor you. It begins to anchor you so that you can't be swayed by little things that happen, little things that come along to distract you. Look, when someone starts to talk to you about Christianity, when someone starts to debate you about theology or anything like that, I don't ever want you to say, well, my pastor said, da 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 my pastor says this. I want you to say, the word of God says that, that, that. I'm not always going to be your pastor. At some point, you're going to move away from the bridge. I'm going to move away from the bridge. I don't have any plans to do that, but at some point, you might have a new pastor, okay? I don't ever want you to walk around saying, well, Pastor Kelly said this. Pastor Kelly, I want you to say the word of God says this. I do my best to ground my sermons in the word of God, but not every Christian leader in your life will do that. You need to know the word of God for yourself. And you need to be willing to challenge people who aren't teaching the word of God as it is presented in the Bible. You've got to know the word of God. The second thing you need to do is you need to get to know the voice of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17, Paul says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Some of you grew up in Christian traditions where you were led to believe that only your pastor could hear from God. Maybe you were led to believe that that certificate of ordination opened up the Holy of Holies and is the only way that someone can receive a word from God. God wants to speak to you. God wants to speak directly to you. I pursue the voice of God, and I always pursue the voice of God for you. When I, when I write a sermon, I always say, God, what do you want to say today? What do you want to say to the people? But I want God to speak to you directly. You don't have to hear the voice of God through me. He wants to speak directly to you. One of the young guys in our congregation, uh, I was encouraging him about some purpose that I saw in his life and a call to ministry. And he said, Pastor, please pray for me. He said, and if God tells you anything about me, please tell me. And I said, God doesn't have to speak through me. God wants to speak right to you. I don't have to give you a word from the Lord. He actually wants to give it directly to you. You can't be dependent on other people to hear from God for you. You have to know his voice for yourself. And the only way to do that is just to become desperate for him. Jesus responds to desperation. So when you start to pray that God will speak to you, when you start to ask God to speak to you, I believe that he will. The third thing you need to do to keep from being deceived is that you have to stay in Christian community. Get plugged into a church. How about this one? You're already here. Uh, When we come together, the spirit dwells among us. When you become a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of you. And then when we as believers come together, the spirit dwells among us. It says in the Bible that the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. And that means when we come together, God is here. You have to stay plugged into Christian community because you need people who care about you. You need brothers and sisters. You need pastors who care about you enough to help you correct your course. Okay? All of us can fall into like weird theology. You pick up a book on Amazon and you're like, oh, look at this. Look at this great book I got. It, it, teaches us that the end times happened in the 80s and now we're living in the new millennium and you need someone to look at you and go that is really stupid okay that's not true and here's why and you you share this moment together and they help to course correct you you have to stay plugged into christian community or you'll end up in some weird places okay so stay plugged into your church and if you're not plugged into church if you're not plugged into this church 
There's a couple ways to make that happen. First of all, we have some great small groups happening. If you're not plugged into a small group, try to get plugged into a small group. If you don't have time for a small group, but you come on Sundays, you can consider joining one of our serve teams. That's another great way to build relationships and get to know people here at the bridge. When the world comes looking for answers, we need to be on a firm foundation so that we as the people of Christ can help direct them to the truth. The world is looking for answers, and they're looking to spirituality for answers. There's a lot of people in Paris that are like, where can I buy crystals, and how can I find a healer, and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, you could try Jesus. That's been a proven, proven effective method for thousands of years. Um, but there's people who are looking for spirituality. I think you have friends that are, that are trying to make meaning out of things that happen, and they're doing it by looking in the wrong places. So, um, after Easter, we're going to start a new sermon series called Doubters Anonymous. And this is going to be a five-week series, and we are going to tackle some of the toughest questions people have about Christianity. So people are going to come on Easter, and we're going to be like, hey, come back next week, and we're going to talk about why a good God would allow suffering. This is going to be one of those sermon series that I'm excited about until I have to write the sermons. But we know that the world is looking for answers. Your non-religious friends, they're not just non-religious because they hate Jesus. It's because they have questions that they've never had answered. And we want to invite them in. So when your unsaved friends come on Easter Sunday, we're going to say, hey, come back next week because we're going to start answering the toughest questions people have about Christianity. We're called to be steadfast because the world is looking for answers. Part of our mission is to reveal Jesus to those we are in proximity to. And for some of us, it's time to grow up in our faith so that we can stay on mission. The truth is we have to stay steadfast because we have a mission to fulfill. Each one of us has a mission to fulfill. Jesus wraps up Mark chapter 13 by using this example. He says, it's like a man going away. He's talking about the second coming. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task. And he tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Jesus is saying, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to set everything right, and you got to make sure you're ready, and you're on mission, and you're steadfast. When I was about 12 years old, an event happened that I had been waiting for my whole life. My parents decided I was old enough to stay home by myself. And I got the house all to myself for the very first time. They would go to dinner, or they would go to a meeting, and they would let me be home by myself for a few hours. And this was, like, very exciting. Um, and sometimes when they left, they would give me a little job to do. My mom would say, hey, when the dryer stops, take the clothes out of the dryer and fold them. Or take the trash out. Or, you know, vacuum the floor. Whatever it is. She would give me a little job to do while they were out. And, you know, a lot of times I would forget. Maybe sometimes I didn't forget, and I just said I forgot. But uh, there would come the moment when I would start to hear the garage door going up. And when I heard the garage door going up, all of a sudden I remembered all the things I was supposed to do. And the towels were cold in the dryer, or the trash was overflowing. There were crumbs on the floor, and I was caught. 
and I knew that I was going to get in trouble, and I didn't really want to get in trouble, but I had, you know, I had messed up. So I'd hear that garage door going up, and my heart would just kind of sink, because I'm like, oh man, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. Some of the teenagers in here are like shielding their faces from their parents. But there were other times where my parents would go out for the evening, and I would wait until they were gone, and as soon as they left, I would clean the whole kitchen, top to bottom, or I would vacuum all the floors, or I would do all the laundry in the laundry room, and I would just decide, I'm going to do something super special. I mean, I was 12, so I'm like, I'm going to do something special and do the laundry. And my mom is like, thank you, that takes care of it for an hour. But, uh, but I, I just decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to like bless my parents. I'm going to do something really cool. And uh, those times I would, I would clean the kitchen really like into the little corners and all this stuff. And then I would just sit there and wait to hear the garage door. Because I'm like, oh man, when they come home, they're going to be so excited. And the garage door would go up and I would just be like, oh, here they come. Here they come. This is going to be great. And they'd come in and I'd be like, guys, look how I cleaned the kitchen. It's, I polished everything here and I you know, polished the faucet and I just went so far to do it perfect. And they were always so nice. They're like, wow, great job. Like, we're going to have to do it again tomorrow because you did it wrong. But, um, but I would sit there so excited for them to come home and see what I had done. Some of us, when we think about the second coming of Jesus, we really do not want to hear that garage door. We're really not ready for Jesus to come back. For me, those times when I'm not ready, it's usually one of two reasons. It's either because I have sin in my life, or it's because I'm distracted from my mission. I'm not doing what I know God called me to do. And I just sit there and I think, man, I hope I don't hear that garage door because I'm not ready. I'm not ready. But there's other days when I sit there and I'm like, oh man, I'm so ready. I'm so ready to meet Jesus. I'm so ready to meet Jesus. I hope it's today. Days like last Sunday when we baptized six people in water, that's one of those days. That's one of those days that when I stand before Jesus, I'm going to be like, Jesus, look what happened here. Look what happened here. We're so proud. And there were, there's a couple people in the room who, when those people were baptized, they said, my friend so-and-so brought me to church. They, they showed me the way to Jesus. Those are the kind of people that I'm going to be like, Jesus, meet this person. Do you know what they did? They brought their friend to come to know you. That makes me so excited to meet Jesus. And I'm so excited when Jesus comes back to say, Jesus, look at the Bridge International Church. We're making a difference on the west side of Paris. We're making a difference on the campus of Nanterre. We're not letting anybody distract us or stand in our way. We're steadfast and we're ready and we're staying on mission. God has called each one of us with a mission to be ready when he comes back. And I believe that all of us have the same three basic missions. Your first mission is to know God. Your first mission is to know Jesus. That's the most important thing, is to know Jesus. There's people all the time, I'm sure you guys are in the same boat, there's always people who want to come and visit Paris. You know, people I haven't talked to in like 15 years will message me and be like, hey, how's it going? By the way, we're coming to Paris. Do you know somewhere we could stay? Or like all the restaurants we can go to. And I'm like, I don't know you. I don't know you. I'm not excited for you to come. This is not going to be fun for me. I don't know you. But if my best friend is coming or if my dad is coming, I get so excited to see them. When Jesus comes, I want to know him. I don't want to feel like I have to introduce myself to Jesus. I want to be like, oh, Jesus, finally, finally, Jesus, I've been waiting for this moment my whole life, and here you are, and I'm so excited to see you face to face. The first thing we got to do is we got to know God. We have to build our life on the cornerstone of Jesus, like David said last week. 
The second thing, our mission in this life is to help others know Christ. Now, I'm not talking about witnessing to your friends. I'm not talking about going into the office and saying, everyone, listen, Jesus died for you. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that when you know God and you build your life on that cornerstone, every relationship in your life is affected. And you're able to help them know Christ through your relationship with them. You're able to help your spouse know the humility and grace of Christ because it's flowing out of you. You're able to have more wisdom when you raise your children because suddenly your heart is the heart of Christ and God gives you wisdom through that. Your friends and your family and your neighbors, the people that society considers the least of these, all of a sudden when Christ is coming out of you, when Christ is flowing through you, it helps others to know the character of God. I want to encourage you too, if you're single and you're dating, the way you date can help people know the heart of Christ. Are you respecting the image of God in people? Are you respecting the image of God in their bodies and in their hearts? We're called to help others know Christ through our relationships with them. And the third thing, the third priority, is to do good work. Your third mission is to do good work. Whatever work your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. If you're a teacher, if you're a lawyer, if you're a doctor, it doesn't matter. Doing excellent work shows the world that we're, we're not just doing this for a paycheck. This is part of the mission that God has given us, and we are steadfast, and we are fulfilling the mission that God has called us to. We wait in hope, but while we wait, we have work to do. Olivia, would you come with the worship team? In the book of 1 Samuel, we see Samuel finds David to anoint David king. Saul was out, and they needed a new king, and God sent Samuel to find the new king. And Samuel saw all of these boys lined up, um, all of Jesse's sons. And he's like, oh, that, one, that one's really tall. Surely he's supposed to be king. Nope, he's not. Nope, nope, nope. And he said, is there another one? Yes, there's another one, but he's out tending the sheep. David was tending the sheep. He was doing his job. He was just doing what God had given him to do. And David was called to be king of Israel. See, David's purpose was not just for his own life. It was also for the nation of Israel. David was in the lineage of Jesus. The purpose that God has for your life is not just for your own self-fulfillment. God is writing a story and you get to be a part of it. And the mission that he has given you is part of the story that he's writing. We have a part to play in the story that God is writing. Jesus is clear with us that when we think about the second coming, when we think about the end times, we're not supposed to be sitting on a hillside just watching the sky for him to come. We have work to do. You'll know when Jesus comes back. You don't have to watch the sky. You'll know when Jesus comes back. We have work to do. Would you stand with me this morning? The worship team is going to lead us in one last song. And uh, we're going to have some people available to pray with you um, in the back. If, you, if you'd like to be prayed for by one of our prayer teams, they're available in the back. And Suzanne and I are available as well. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to make today the day that you become a follower of Jesus. And if you're here and you are a Christian and you dread the sound of that garage door, you dread Jesus coming back, I want to encourage you to take the next few minutes and let God speak to you about why that is and reevaluate whether or not you're living on mission. Let's take the next few moments just to sing and to reflect. And if you need prayer, we're available to pray with you.